I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Season 3 of Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at consminds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 35, we read The Virtue of Nationalism by Yoram Hazani, published in 2018. Yoram Hazani was born in Rehovot, Israel in 1964. He graduated from Princeton University in East Asian Studies in 1986, and then completed a PhD in political theory at Rutgers University in 1993. In 94, he founded the Shalem Center, a research institute focused on philosophy, political theory, Talmud, and Jewish history uh, in Jerusalem. The Center's Press became Israel's leading publisher of Western philosophy translated into Hebrew. In 2013, Shalem was accredited to grant Israel's first liberal arts uh, bachelor's of arts, and it formally became Shalem College. He served as president of Shalem until 2002 and as provost to 2012. Hazoni has written books on philosophy, politics, and Hebrew scripture. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and quite a few other outlets. He currently lives in Jerusalem with his wife and nine children. So in the virtue of nationalism, he's going to set up a really interesting dichotomy to give us a, a definition of what he means by nationalism. So first he says, nationalism is a principled standpoint that regards the world as governed best when nations are able to chart their own independent course, cultivating their own traditions and pursuing their own interests without interference. And he's going to contrast this with what he calls imperialism. So setting up a dichotomy between nationalism and imperialism. So he says, For centuries, the politics of Western nations have been characterized by a struggle between two antithetical visions of world order. That's nationalism and imperialism. On the one hand, nationalism, an order of free and independent nations, each pursuing the political good in accordance with its own traditions and understanding, versus imperialism, which he describes as an order of peoples united under a single regime of law, promulgated and maintained by a single supranational authority. And so it can the, the imperialism description really is I mean I think draws to mind like the ancient Roman Empire or some of maybe these other great empires like the Assyrian or Babylonian Empire. Mm-hmm. So but in the contemporary terms, what he wants to point to in, in contrast to nationalism is what he calls the two great imperialist projects of today. One is the European Union, where it's pulling together all these different countries, all these different separate nations into one whole, you know, larger entity. And then also uh, the establishing of the American world order. So what he's going to call imperialism is sort of the Pax Americana for the entire world. You know, the, the attempt by, I guess, American foreign policy to bring a, a rules-based order to, to the world. And so he, he sets forth all these euphemisms that, that he says more or less represent imperialism. That would be a new world order, ever closer union, 
um, world openness, a rules-based order, as I said, an international community, transnationalism, uh, the American century, uh, the right side of history, or the end of history. And as you read through these, I mean, as I read through them, it really made me think, oh yeah, I guess there are <laughs> some folks maybe on the the isolationist right who you know absolutely loathe many of these terms and not all of them do I love either. But mm-hmm. anyway, so he sets up this uh, this competition between nationalism and imperialism. And what did you think? Did you uh, did you buy that? I mean, did it work for you? I think I think um, imperialism is it more of an eye catching term? But I don't I don't know that it really is the right term here. Cause I'm, I think we think of imperialism. Which, I mean, sometimes uniting the world under one idea is imperialism. It's, you know, conquest like Soviet imperialism was, but, uh, I don't know that the liberal order is itself. A, it's not that controlling. I think it's more, and he, he, uh, he talks about Fukuyama's book in here a little bit, doesn't really care for it, but cause I think he, he thinks of it as this idea that we're going to mm-hmm. force liberal democracy on everybody. Um, I don't know that, that that's what America's doing. I think it's, I don't think that's what Fukuyama was talking about either. Um, I think it's more about promoting this, that this is the best idea going. Mm-hmm. It seems to work well, but I think has only makes some good points about just this contrast between what he, what he called the, the Protestant version of national uh, organization, which sort of prevailed from the 30 years war until the second world war. This idea that like nations should be nations, you know, a, a, a people, and he, he defines what a nation is and we can get into that, but we, the idea that a people with a certain national identity should be under their own state, but that each state should have minimum moral requirements. Um, so it's sort of that Westphalian treaty based rules based national order that we, that America was born into and that we lived most of our history under the idea like you're a nation, you can do what you want for your own people, but it doesn't mean going and taking over other nations. It doesn't mean acting in, you know, horrible ways. And even though I think it implies some basic ideas that you should govern your own people and within the rules, you know, and what those rules are is extremely fuzzy, but that system he sees as under attack from this imperial liberalism, which instead of that balance focuses really specifically on one thing, the idea of individual liberty. That's the organizing principle of states. That's what it is. It doesn't matter. You know, it applies to all nations equally. It doesn't matter if that's in your national tradition or not. And I I can see why writing in 2018, he sees a problem with that because I think that was a lot of people thought that in various times in American history and in, in other countries' history, like when we, I think the invasion of Iraq was partially motivated by the idea that the Iraqi people would be better off mm-hmm. in a liberal democracy, which I happen to believe, but they didn't seem to believe it that much after we got there. And I think to Hazoni's point, it's that's not, not necessarily part of their national mm-hmm. characteristics. I think I think it could be. I think he's a little more pessimistic about the idea of liberty as a universal value, but certainly we've seen it. I mean, we've seen around like the Arab Spring. A lot of people in America had hopes for that. Oh, it's, you know, it's going to be liberal democracy in, in the Middle East and North Africa. It's mostly not. So 
this idea that nations have their own national virtues and national ideals and that they should be free to promote them to the extent that it doesn't involve taking over other nations. Mm -hmm. That's an appealing concept. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I mean, I do like the fact that he he's describing a nationalism that's different than, you know, I think what immediately comes to mind for most people is, you know, Nazi Germany or, you know, a national, a fascist, you know, nationalism. Mm -hmm. And what he's trying to, I, he's almost like he wants to reclaim the term nationalism and say, no, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is independent nations. And he uses the Israelites as his, his key uh, example. So he says the Bible offers the first political order based on the independence of a nation living within limited borders alongside other independent nations. And so a nation is a number of tribes with a common language or religion and a past history of acting as a body for the common defense and other large-scale enterprises. And uh, he points to the Bible, to the Israelites basically, as that one nation that's united, self-governing, governing, and uninterested in bringing its neighbors under its rule. So it, to, to, I think what he's trying to say is he basically describes the imperialism. For him, the, the definition is more or less having ambition beyond your borders. That's um, um, imperialism, you know, wanting to go mm -hmm. beyond your borders. And whereas nationalism is you, you're in, you're not interested in, in uh, overtaking or convincing anyone outside your borders. You're, you're focused on the internal, making your own nation great or whatever. And I, I think that definition is important because he, he kind of comes back to it a few times, especially in drawing this contrast with, with German fascism mm -hmm. is that's a def the definition talks about a common language, a common religion, possibly. It doesn't talk about a common race or ethnic background. Right, yeah. I think that's Im that's important, I think, because it, and he's also, it, he, he draws comparisons to this in the uh, in Old Testament, the Israelites, but, you know, if there was, there was rules that if, you know, people from other nations came to live among them, how they could be accepted into the, the Israelite nations. And, you know, it wasn't just, you've got to be descended from these people or else you're mm -hmm. out. You're the enemy. You know, it was more broad-minded than that. It was more about sharing traditions and in, in the case of ancient Israel about sharing the specific religion. But I think that's a real important point that contrasts with some of the uglier things that happen under the name of nationalism. And it's, it's one he comes back to a lot because I, I think, as much as this is a book, it's written in English and, you know, it, it talks about Europe and America. It's really a book aimed at the, the, the question of the state of Israel mm -hmm. today. So it's, so he has to, I think he's trying to reclaim nationalism while also very much on his mind is the idea that he knows people are going to say, well, nationalism, what about the German nationalism that tried to exterminate our people? So he, I, I think he makes a, a, a smart contrast and talks about the old idea of nationalism didn't talk about dna i mean i didn't even know about dna back then you know but it wasn't it wasn't this blood nationalism that you sometimes hear even modern day fascists or quasi fascists talking about it wasn't like what we what they call white nationalism in america mm -hmm. is not nationalism because they're not you know they're not after uniting the american nation they're after some racial division that's its own thing. Mm -hmm. I think that that is important. 
think he talks about what a national state is too. It's a nation whose disparate tribes have come together under a single standing government independent of all other governments. Mm -hmm. So the tribes can be disparate, you know, and they may have been in different areas of the country, just like, I mean, France was united from Frankish tribes that were in various parts of the Roman provinces, and they probably didn't have everything in common, but they had certain things in common, certain history, certain traditions, uh, a language that was developing, and that became France, and that's been a nation for a thousand years. So I I think that's a, a real important point that we, it's going to be important in the 21st century nationalism discussion. Yeah, I think that's right. There's there's a little bit of sleight of hand, though, to say that nationalism is this thing that I'm defining, and you know everyone else is probably going to think in terms of Nazi Germany, but I'm going to say, no, I'm going to write them out of the definition because I'm going to say that fa uh, fascist Germany had serious ambition beyond its borders to sort of, you know, take over the world. And all that is true. All that is right. But I, I, it leaves me a little dissatisfied because I wanted him to take it, take it head on a little bit more. I don't know about yeah. you, but uh, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it, 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 people do think of fascism as an outgrowth of nationalism and it, it'd be better to be honest about the fact that they probably thought of themselves as nationalists mm -hmm. too. I mean, they were talking about a, a national ambition. I think it could have been more clear that he was hearkening back to the original nationalism, the, the liberal nationalism that came out of the 1848 revolutions and up to, I mean, he, met, he talks about Woodrow Wilson's 14 points about the idea of self-determination of nations mm -hmm. and that that was a liberal idea at its time. The idea, you know, it was an anti-imperial idea that these cobbled together empires like Russia and Austria-Hungary were thwarting the truly liberal goal of a, a people being able to govern itself free from, from foreign emperors or other rulers. Mm -hmm. But you're, you're right. It's a little, he could have spent more time on that. Some of that said, I mean, it is compelling the idea that what, what a nation, what we're talking about is um, these, these tribes or a people that have so much history, common language, common religion, or a history of working together to fight against other common enemies that yeah i mean that is a that that is a national state that uh, that we can recognize and, and i do like that so he says um where sort of in, intellectual trajectory went off track was with uh ironically with john locke um and listeners uh go back and listen to our episode four on john locke one of the founding uh thinkers for for the uh liberal order and for the united states of america for sure but he has some serious critiques of John Locke's thinking. He, call, he says, uh, the rationalist view of human political life has abstracted away every bond that ties human beings to one another other than consent. And so it lacks a description of the empirical world in which mutual loyalties bind people, families, and tribes together. It ignores responsibilities intrinsic to memberships in collectives, establishing demands that do not arise from consent. That would be sort of like family demands and family ties and sort of this common adver adversity that, that binds people together. In other words, to give the, the two second recap of, of John Locke, uh, he posits this state of nature, an original state where human beings were all independent and uh, entirely you know equal, but also completely independent actors. And the reason we formed humans formed government is because some people were more aggressive than others at at uh, harming or stealing property 
And so in order to protect property and uh, to ensure that we could all get along, we formed this, uh, this government with very limited power that more or less existed to protect our property and protect each other from harm. And uh, what Hazoni is saying here is basically like, that's not how humans behave. That's not a good description of motivations, you know, the human motivations, because consent and this separate, independent, completely, uh, you know, untouched, you know, human thinker, that's, uh, that's not how we behave. Instead, we're bound together as families, as tribes, as nations. And so much of our decision-making and motivations are, you know, driven by these loyalties and these relationships that we have. Several of our thinkers have have discussed this in books, um, you know, along the, along the path of, of conservative minds, our podcast here, but, and just to give a, a, a little teaser, I think that, uh, Patrick Deneen is a book we're going to read why liberalism failed. I think he makes a better, gives a better argument of this, but it really gets to something that I think is real that has rejects the state of nature paradigm and social contract theory, because he says that humans are, you know, they're motivated not purely by self-interest, but that, but they're really motivated by, their associations, their families, their relationships. And that's, and, and by writing that out of the historical narrative, what you're doing is really writing out like the real origin story of, of human beings. It's, it's a fair point. I mean, I think, I think Locke was important in our Anglo-American foundation because he was, he was pushing back against the heavier tradition weighted, uh, ideal that had governed for centuries and you know, it's sort of clearing room for individual rights. He had to be pretty, pretty far out in the idea of like, where do rights come from? And and is this, and and I guess he did, I don't know if he ever specifically said that it's universal, but it's certainly very heavily implied that these life, liberty, and property rights are motivations for all mankind. And that's why we all came together. I think having established that system, he wouldn't need to write that sort of thing today. I think he could afford to be more nuanced today if, if, if he were around because he, he won in a, in a yeah. pretty magnificent sense. I mean, the idea of individual liberties is now woven into the American and, and British fabrics of society. It's, it's extremely important to who we are. But um, yeah, his only calls it a utopian vision, and I never thought about it that way, but there's, there's something to that. Um, because as we've just, we discussed it a lot last season, this idea of radical individualism does kind of ignore some basic facts of human life. Mm -hmm. We, we do form families and we do form local associations. You know, we, we feel, we feel different about our neighbor than we do about somebody on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. And his only kind of takes that tactic explaining that well we have families obviously we feel a certain way towards our family right i mean whether we're talking about somebody who is a blood relative or a relative by marriage or a relative by adoption the family is a it's a different kind of unit than anything else it's the it's the real smallest unit in society beyond the individual and it's it, in every culture involves some ties and he just kind of extrapolates that out you know can you know a family feels if somebody in a family succeeds the whole family's happy you know this is not they're not just a bunch of individuals who live in the same house or same city mm-hmm. there's a real 
there's a bond there. And if somebody in the family is hurting, the whole family suffers. And that's true. So he expands that to, you know, sort of the way we feel about regions and tribes and, and ultimately the nation as sort of an extension of the family. I think there's, I think it's very reasonable. I mean, we do feel different when something bad happens to an American than if something bad happens to somebody from a country we've never visited, don't know anybody in. And it's, it's true. I mean, even if people we don't know or don't particularly even like, if we do know them, you know, their suffering is suffer is a small part of the country's suffering. And that's, mm-hmm. it's what I, what I kind of wished you would get into. And I have not seen this a good answer for this in any explanation of nationalism is how do you know which ones are nations and which ones aren't, you know, I mean, there's, there's Spanish nationalists and there's Catalan nationalists and they have very different ideas about what is the Spanish nation, you know, yeah. or Scottish nationalists versus British nationalists. You know, they, one of them says, yeah, this, this little part's the nation right here. The other one says, no, the whole Island, you know, we're all, yeah. we've been together 300 years. We have a common, we have a common thing now. Um, and you could get into that with, um, the civil war too, you know, with Confederate secession where they've, a separate nation within the American nation. They thought so for a time. And, you know, we in the North did not. And, you know, how do you know who's right in that instance? So it's, I would, I would have liked to see more about that, but I don't know if there is a good answer for that either. Well, I I think it's a salient point. And I I wrote this in the margins as well. You know, like he, he sometimes refers to the nation as the collective. And I'm like, well, what is the collective? Let, let me read a couple definitions he gives here, and then then let's address the question again. He says, "All right, so it's it's mutual loyalty that motivates humans. You know, we have a we have an intense need to seek the material success of the collective. We work to ensure that members of the tribe, the collective meaning the tribe, we work to ensure that members of the tribe are loyal to one another in adversity. We toil to hand down the cultural inheritance of the collect of the of the tribe collective, its language and religion, its laws." and traditions, its historical perspective. So far from being motivated only to secure your own life and property, humans are ceaselessly concerned to advance the health and prosperity of the family, clan, tribe, or nation to which they are loyal. To me, I mean, you made a great description of this. I think this is intuitive. We understand that I care more about my daughter's well-being than I do about um, random girl in, in a random country, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and it does there is kind of concentric circles of, of how much we care. And maybe on an intellectual level, you can back up and say, well, you should care just as much about, you know, this daughter in, in Africa as you do about, you know, a little girl in, in Nebraska, but just intuitively we don't. Mm-hmm. But then again, then to your question, which I have too, which is like, well, what is the tribe? I mean, exactly. What is the, what is the collective? Because I feel like in America, you and I have made the argument many times on the podcast that, that the tribe should be team America. You know, we, that, that should be our, our nation, Mm -hmm. our collective, but it's almost like we're rapidly moving in a, in a a different direction where you have, it's almost like the, the collective is like this, you know, the, the, those who are happy with the democratic or the, the demographic shift and those who are not particularly happy with it, you know, Mm -hmm. you can call that racism or you can say, or you can call it, you know, sort of like a, a natural 
I guess, a, um, a, a natural feeling towards, you know, people that you view as part of you, part of your club, part of your tribe, part of your people that seems to be splitting completely apart in America. Like, so, you know, mm-hmm. so what is the, what is the collective? What is the tribe? Like, is it, is it actually our, our, our nation? Is it the nation itself? That's, he doesn't really answer this, but he does say, you know, common religion, common people. We do have a common religion of Christianity, but of course that's changing in America too. And then, um, you know, especially it's changing because not so much because there's so many Muslims moving in as it is that, you know, people are becoming less, you know, believing and that sort of thing. But yeah. And we have a common language, which he talks about, but it's also a, <clears throat> a common language we share with a lot of other countries. Mm-hmm. So I, I think a lot of it comes down to it's sort of backward looking, sort of bootstrapping, you know, I mean, the American people is a people because we've been a people for at least 200 something years and maybe even longer if you want to go back to the colonial period. But that was that true yet at the time of the revolution, you know, and mm-hmm. had the revolution mm-hmm. spread to Canada as we wished it would in those days would the Canadian people now in 2019 be a part of would be seamlessly integrated into that nation. And I think we would have because we would have grown up together and we would have experienced all these things together as na- as a nation. But the fact that it didn't spread north of the 49th parallel and that they developed their own course in in relationship to the colonial power and then later just in, as a as a separate nation means that we're not even though we do share so many things with them. We have they are a majority Christian nation. They're mostly English speaking nation as we are. You know, they have a colonial heritage as we do and, but we're different. And so it's sort of, it's, it's not something you can, I think, universalize as a rule. And that's why I want an answer to this question, but I don't think there is one. I think it's Mm -hmm. sort of like a, I know it when I see it kind of thing. We know that we have an American nation and they have a Canadian nation and why they're not the same is because they're just not, they never were. Mm -hmm. And in in an alternate universe where they were, then people would say, well, of course, yes, folks in New Brunswick are the same as folks in Maine. We're all one nation. So that I think is, I mean, that's why nationalism is kind of an outgrowth of the, the romantic movement, the emotional reaction against the enlightenment that followed a generation or two later. Cause it's, uh, there's a lot of feelings in it. There's, there's things you can't make an equation out of. I think that's in any discussion of what nationalism is, that's going to be a stumbling block for convincing people who don't have those same feelings that this is, this is a true thing. Yeah. I think you're really putting your finger on something because as you talk, it really occurs to me that, you know, that's why we think of, of fascist Germany as, as nationalist is because they, they played on these feelings, mm. you know, they generated those feelings and they said, it's not just in Germany, you know, it's in the Sudetenland, it's in the Rhineland, you know, we, we need, it's in Austria. These are our people and we need to bring our, bring our people back together again. That's different than saying, you know, nationalism is, or, or you know, contrasted to imperialism when, you know, nationalism ends when you have ambitions outside your borders. But on the other hand, the way I think we intuitively think of nationalism is more along the lines of what you just described, which is like, it's it's more of like a feeling. It's more of a uh, a camaraderie, a, a a kinship, and that may or may not fall along, you know, the currently drawn borders. Yeah, you know, and sometimes protecting the nation 
forces you to get involved outside your borders. And then, it's, yeah. and then there's the, well, how much? And then once that job's done, do you stay? And now are you becoming, without intending to necessarily, are you becoming an imperial power? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think you could say that about Israel too. They occupied a big slice of South Lebanon because there were terrorists coming over the border and, and endangering the Israeli people. Okay, but the longer you stay there, the more you're ruling over a foreign people. And then it, it, the question is, well, how much longer can we do this and still be that sort of humble nationalism that Hazoni is talking about? And, you know, America, certainly we have troops in a lot of places and we're not conquering places these days. But I mean, we held the Philippines for a time, you know, and that there wasn't really an effort to integrate them into the American whole. It was always a separate thing. And, you know, we let them have their independence pretty early compared to other colonial nations. But it's, I think that line that he's trying to make between aggressive imperial quasi-nationalism and what he would think of as the real, you know, local, humble, self-determination kind of nationalism, where there's not a a bright line between your people and the people next door, you know, and there usually isn't because folks mix and borders are fuzzy. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a temptation for any nationalist to become an imperialist. And that's, I know, I think nowadays we'd think it's probably good to fight against that temptation, but it's there. And it, it's, I mean, mm-hmm. Russia's doing it now and they're, you know, little frozen conflicts in the Crimea and the Caucasus and, and Moldova. And the, there's no reason, I mean, China kind of has their own thing going on too. So it, it it's, it's hard to separate the two, I think. Harder mm-hmm. than, I mean, he makes it like there's a real, oh, this is a, one thing and this is another and they're totally separate. I think they, it's easy to bleed one into the other, sometimes on purpose, sometimes without even meaning it. Yeah, I, I agree. And especially when you're taking a next step and saying not just, you know, military might imperialism, but also intellectual, ideological imperialism, because that seems to be his critique of America. And, you know, the Pax Americana is not that we're actually occupying the Philippines or, you know, even occupying Iraq, but that we're trying to spread an idea, Yeah, you know, the, that Lockean idea of liberal order and individual autonomy and rather than letting, letting these nations just be who they are. And, uh, you know, there's on the one hand, there's something to that. On the other hand, I think that that just, that doesn't hold as well, you know, because in, in Iraq, for example, that's not one people that's, that's several people mm-hmm. smashed together you know, is it, is it imperialist for America to want to share our ideals and, and bring some stability and, you know, to the, to the world because of these, um, what I would argue are elevating ideals of, of, uh, human individuality and, and freedom. Um, well that, that's not necessarily a defense of the Iraq war, but I guess what I'm saying is that's a very different color of imperialist than Soviet Russia, just, you know, driving the tanks into into every neighboring country and and taking them over wholesale and then they become you know tributes to the moscow or something i think you're right yeah and there, there's there's a definitely a difference between even even beyond our military adventures you know there's the kind of soft power that liberal democracy projects you know in our projects either through the state department or just through the way our culture and is promoted is kind of saying this is what we're doing is the best 
it's pretty great. You guys should try it. You know, we promote democracy, you know, through through sanctions too. When some of these, when some dictator is abusing his people, you know, or, so that's it's hard to say that's wrong because I think maybe because we are part of that system and we do believe that you know that, that human rights are at least to some extent universal. At least some of them are. You know, I mean, it may it may not be that every country wants to be organized the way our constitution organizes this country, but a lot of the ideas behind our government feel to me like they should have universal applicability. Well, and you know, if, if the argument is it's nationalist until it has ambitions beyond its border, then you're always in the right to say that, Oh, that, that wasn't nationalism, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's like, it's, it's kind of like the, the old argument that, you know, communism has never been tried and <laughs> right. for real, you know, like it's each, each time has been a, you know, and it's a, uh, departed from, from the true, you know, ideological purity or whatever. Well, so if we're going to say that, you know, nationalism exists unless and until like a country invades another or get, goes to war, then, oh, that's not nationalism anymore. Well, then you're, you're always on safe ground and protected, but that's not, doesn't have much predictive power. I mean, what, what we need to see is, you know, so, so we're trying to, you know, America's trying to spread this ideal because, you know, uh, countries that have free markets, countries that have a McDonald's are much less likely to go to war with each other. And so I think to your point, like, can we criticize this, the spreading of, you know, free market and liberal ideals <laughs> because it's going beyond our borders and we'll call that imperialist. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, the national was. No, I think I, I, I get what you're saying. Cause it, 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 it's not imperialism where, cause we're not really, we're not really forcing it on anyone. We're not making them pay tribute to Washington, but it's people talk about cultural imperialism, but my reaction to that has always been, it's like, we're just putting our culture out there. And if people like it, they like it. You know, if our movie stars and sports stars are big in places they've never seen or heard of, that's because they're doing something cool and people like it. Hmm. Um, and the same with our, you know, Lockean ideas. It's, if we invade a country and write them a new constitution and say, this is, this is how it is now that's imperialism. But if people overthrow a dictator and look to America and say, you know, like, like the folks in Hong Kong are trying to do and say, look at these ideals, look at this stuff about free speech, about free religion, about, you know, electing our leaders and being able to unelect them if we feel like it, that's, that's pretty great. We want that for ourselves. It's hard to call that liberal yeah. imperialism. We're, we're just yeah, yeah, setting yeah. the example and telling people about it. And people are saying, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. So what's the, where to draw the line again? It's, it's, it's fuzzy. And I think an American writing on nationalism would have a different outlook than an Israeli writing on nationalism because mm -hmm. oh, maybe that's, that's, maybe that's part of nationalism is that people from different nations sometimes see things differently. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's build on that point because um, a good chunk of the book is actually dedicated to a defense of Israel. And I think because I think I, think I got to the end of the book and I, I think probably you did too. And, and it's kind of like a little bit of an eye roll like, oh, this this whole argument was sort of built up as a as a defensive as a backdoor defense of Israel, more or less. And, and it's not to say it's not a good one. Yeah. It's just uh, like. Oh, it was. It's like this army argument wasn't made for itself. It was made for this other reason. But 
So he, you know, he, he says, you know, Israel is publicly pilloried in international bodies, in the media and on university campuses around the world, he says, for alleged violation of human rights. And it's, and he, he deeply resents this and rightly mm-hmm. so, but the Jews tried to rely on, on well-meaning country, uh, outsiders like America and Britain to defend them. And they still had Auschwitz and, he says the meaning of Auschwitz is that the Jews failed to defend their children and they're not going to do that ever again. And that's the meaning of Israel. But yet they still take these, this constant barrage of criticism and, and kind of borderline, you know, contempt that, uh, that especially Europeans and EU types have, uh, against Israel because he says Jews are no Muslim or third world people because they are seen as Europeans who have reached the state of moral maturity. In other words, they're like adults who know better. So when, when Israel has, you know, feels a, a national pride and they're, they are a people and they do share this common language. And even if they don't share it, as soon as they get to Israel, they learn Hebrew, you know, they, so they, they have this, this, um, common history of the, you know, the Holocaust and, and being, you know, driven, um, throughout history and, and persecuted once they, when they exercise kind of their independent interests, um, they're, they're criticized because they're, they sh- ostensibly they're adults who know better. They're more, they're Europeans who should know that, you know, nationalism is passe and child and it's for children. And so on the other hand, you have Iran and Turkey and all the Arab countries. They don't receive this same level of criticism, even to any extent, really. Because he says they're considered being at a primitive state in their history, like they're still they're still children, so they they don't deserve all the the Jews. On the other hand, they should know better that nationalism breeds hatred, and that's why we had Holocaust. In the first yeah, time. and that, that's that's kind of a li- it's a more severe version of the way Europeans look at America too. You know, they act like yep. they've they're over it. You know, and the nationalism. Oh, that look at all the bad things that happened. I mean, and he makes some good arguments about why that's a nonsense argument. You know about you know hatred and warfare predate nationalism and have been practiced by imperial countries and and even an, explicitly anti-nationalist countries like the Soviet Union. You know, or they it, so mm-hmm. it, it and it. I think what it is is that the world wars broke Europe. They, they were exhausted with all of the death and suffering and anything that looked like what came before, they were going to turn their backs on it and retreat. And they've had peace since then for the most part. So I think they're sort of doing a, you know, like a post hoc after uh, ergo propter hoc argument, you know, it's like, well, look, we stopped being nationalist and we've had a pretty peaceful time of it. But I think mm-hmm. what Hazoni says and what I think we would say is you had peace because we occupied half of your continent. The Russia <laughs> occupied the other half and we had a million nukes pointing at each other and you know warfare would have led to near extinction so we all kind of settled down because we had to it was it wasn't it wasn't the EU project it was the the Mexican standoff between NATO and the Warsaw Pact that kept peace in Europe yeah and and it remains american military might around the world yeah. i mean that it's easy it's easy for them to say well, look how evolved and peaceful we are we don't get involved with this nationalism stuff but our nationalistic americans are the ones keeping that peace you know through nato mm-hmm. through and through you know the defending freedom of the seas so that they can trade you know we do that 
because we think it's the right thing to do. We do it because it helps American commerce, but it also helps European commerce and Asian commerce. And it help and that helps keep the peace because the people don't have want and famine and blockades. They're they're living under the mm-hmm. umbrella of America's America's nuclear umbrella of safety. Um, yeah, but here's here's where I really tr- uh, cheer Trump. For example, is he calls all that out. Yeah, I mean, for the first time in in my lifetime, someone is actually st- a president is saying like, "No, this is baloney." Like you guys. <laughs> you're safe and protected because of us and it's time for you to get your butts in gear and help out. Yeah. And in this way, they're more like the, the children that they are accusing us and Israel of being, you know, cause yeah. it's like, it's like when your teenager mouths off to you, why do I have to do this? Why? Cause you live in this house. You're yeah. part of this family. You got to do some chores. And by the way, can I have $20? Yeah. (laughs) So it's, you know, it's It's like, I don't want you in my life. Leave me alone. You know, this is my life. I can do, do whatever I want. Can I have $20? (laughs) Yeah. Here they are. You know, America's so militaristic and imperialistic. Look at, you know, like, yeah, it's the same military that keeps the Russians from occupying Paris. So maybe, you know, you don't have to love it, but just, you know, have a little respect. So this is also though a little problematic for Hazoni's argument because, because again, it, at the outset, he he creates this dichotomy between you know uh, this Pax Americana imperialism versus a country that just wants to stick to its own knitting. But then later he says, "Yeah, but America's reviled and deplored for the same reasons because it also wants to exercise its own independent judgment interests, you know, as a as a as a nation." So it's kind of like America's playing both roles, I guess, mm-hmm. in this in this story we're both nationalist and imperialist at the same time that's true he, he kind of does he splits the baby on that one all right well i think we covered it so what's your closing thoughts on Hazoni? um i i think it was definitely a well-researched effort and even if it was probably aimed at a different audience than our podcast is aimed at it has a lot to share with with the american audience and the conservative audience in particular nationalism is one of those things that I think in the era we were growing up in that it seemed like an old idea, but now some of the, uh, the global ideas that we grew up with, like socialism are the ones that seem on, on the way out, mm-hmm. hopefully. And, uh, nationalism is, is resurgent in Europe, despite all of their leaders, best intents, and it's resurgent in America. And, you know, it can, I think books like this are important in showing that nationalism doesn't necessarily have to be the bad nationalism. There's mm-hmm. also the good nationalism, the liberal nationalism of self-determination of peoples. And um, it's something we should discuss more rather than just throwing around the name nationalism the way you throw around liberal or neocon or fascist or what have you. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, There's more there than the label. And I think Sony does a good job in separating the good from the bad within that label. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And I enjoyed the fact that he, he made an attempt at this because, you know, just intuitively, we know that human beings are motivated by more than just, just enlightened, independent self-interest. You know, we, we have families, we have, we have communities. And I think your, your politics are dictated a lot more by where you were born and grew up than it, than by your own sort of enlightened logic and uh, and so he's he's putting his finger on that a little bit. I was a again a little dissatisfied with. I wanted him to make a stronger argument, and and then I was 
even more a little bit disappointed when when he turned really turned this into a defense of Israel. Not not because I don't think it's some you know justified to some extent, but just because I don't know. I wanted something stronger because I I guess I I feel like he's on to something, mm-hmm. um, and and I wanted him to make a stronger argument for it. But uh, he does uh, it does kind of you know portend several of these ideas. He portends some some of the readings that we're going to do later in the season next week and the week after, and and that that's going to be fun. And some of these I think some of these arguments will be better developed probably, and and that should be fun. So all right, that's it for Hazoni. Next week we're going to read a book called uh, Liberalism. Uh, by Ludwig von Mises, and by liberalism he means basically like free market capitalism, classical liberalism. That book was published in 1927. So uh, catch us then. In the meantime, give us a good review on uh, on iTunes, and hopefully uh, we'll keep giving you good books. Okay, see you. <laughs>